Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy 4th of July weekend. First, my apologies that this week's show is a bit late. We had some technical difficulties. On this holiday weekend, Barclay L. Hendricks. Hendricks's work is on view now in Barclay L. Hendricks' works from the collection at the National Museum of Art at Duke University. The exhibition is on view through July 30th. The Nasher has one of the finest collections of Hendricks's work. This conversation was taped in 2014 on the occasion of the exhibition Witness Art and Civil Rights in the 60s, which was then at the Brooklyn Museum. We'll have a link so you can see images of art discussed on this week's program at manpodcast.com. Barclay Hendricks, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist, Marisa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, this first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's Senior Curator of Exhibitions, Michael Goodson, the show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Barclay Hendricks, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Let's start with the premise of Witness, Art and Civil Rights in the 60s at the Brooklyn Museum, which is a kind of initial investigation into how artists participated in or engaged with the civil rights movement of the 1960s in their work. The show includes three paintings you made in 1969. 1969, just for point of reference for listeners, was the year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated it was a year during which there was a good bit of activist-generated tumult on college campuses and violence in urban America. Could you talk us through how much you were focused on those events in, in, in the late 60s and how much you were focused on Vietnam? You entered the New Jersey National Guard in 1968 and, and kind of how you navigated those two different things at that time. Well, first of all, the National Guard was to save my buns from being sent to Vietnam. <laughs> right. To be very, very honest. And my involvement with the, the civil rights issue was non existent as far as my creative approach was concerned. It just happened to be the time period that those works were done. I wasn't working any specific gold other than being a damn good artist and doing what I liked. I mean, I mean, the the movement part of the civil rights movement was over by by '69, pretty much. Your focus was on 
making really good paintings and not on particularly engaging with the movement, with the exception of maybe one or two paintings? Well, there again, I have to sort of be very, very honest. I'm tired of, of, of these shows that constantly want to link me to the time period that the turmoil was happening. Yes, I was working during that time period. However, my motivation was to do what I liked and do what inspired me and just so happens it coincided with a time period that has now become infamous as far as American history is concerned. And there's a, a script that's kind of written as far as America is concerned that follows a kind of misery of my peeps situation, which is unfortunate, but my motivation was to be as good as possible and to follow through with the inspiration of trying to address talents and feelings that motivated me, plain mm -hmm. and simple. If you are familiar with uh, the pieces in the show, they follow a particular theme that has nothing to do with the turmoil that was going on. I'm, was, I say, I was certainly aware of the history, unquestionably. However, that wasn't my motivation. Basketball, within the context of the pieces that are part of the show, Debbie's Delight, which was the nickname for Will Chamberlain. I was from Philadelphia, and Chamberlain was one of the greatest basketball players known at that time. And the other piece, Lottie Mama, was my cousin, who had a wonderful, spectacular hairstyle. And the title was, in a way, inspired by... Nina Simone. Are you familiar with Nina? Oh, yes. My cousin Kathy had a, an attitude that reminded me of Nina. That was the title. And the other components of that particular piece was, well, it's my, it was my second gold leaf piece. I worked like hell to pull that off because it was, to say, a new creative experience at the time, and I uh, labored very, very, very long. In fact, I, I was gold leaving damn near all day, really. And it was a slow size. As I say, it was a, a learning experience with a new medium, and it came together after many, 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 many hours of work. And that was basically the motivation. I chuckle because Lottie Mama is, is a large shaped campus. It's about four and a half feet tall by, by a little over three feet wide. It is clearly inspired, motivated maybe by traditional icon painting. So in the late 60s, you had traveled to Europe, right? Is that, am I getting about the time frame of that trip right? Yeah. I had uh, been the recipient of Crescent Memorial scholarship from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and that allowed me to travel through Europe for three months with everything paid for, and I made a point to visit those museums that were part of the European history, and 
I did my homework by looking at uh, Greek painters. That was a very, very enlightening experience that uh, I brought back and tried to make my own statements through uh, the experience of seeing great painters. Was it while you were in Europe that the idea of making your own icon became of interest, or was it after you came back? Well, after I came back, in fact, the shape of Lodi Mama was, I had made four canvases that size because a friend had given me uh, a round canvas, or, or actually a round stretcher, and actually two. And I decided to uh, do four paintings. And I did three that were basically basketball mo- motifs. And they were called Father, Son, and. And then I had this last stretch canvas, and Lottie Mama was born. So it is much, it, it kind of came out of a marriage of what was available to you in the studio and, and memories from, from Europe then? Well, yes and no. As I said, the travel experience allowed me to see a number of different styles, and I finally got to uh, see hundreds of Greek and Russian icons. And as you know, the uh, motif of the icons being quite shiny and sparkly, silver, gold, jewel-encrusted, and those kind of things were part of some of the directions that I wanted to uh, get involved with. The gold motif, altarpieces, and things like that was kind of in the back of my mind, but I wasn't necessarily trying to duplicate them. The shape of Kathy's hair was a, a, a natural compositional piece that the round format of the top of the stretcher. A marvelous round afro. The work is now in the collection of the Studio Museum in Harlem. We'll have images of it on Modern Art Notes and on manpodcast.com. The one way in which the pose of the figure most departs from the traditional kind of frontal, dead-on icon format is the way in which she's holding her arms. Kathy's right arm is kind of held in front of her, and her left arm crosses over her body and and joins to her arm just above her elbow. Why that pose? I guess it was comfortable for her to hold for the time. Oh, so you did this one from a live model? Yeah. It's a marvelous, it's just really a marvelous painting. You mentioned the basketball paintings as well. One of them is in the show at the Brooklyn Museum, Dippy's Delight, also from 1969. The basketball paintings are not all, but many of them uh, are not all round, but many of them are. Speaking of of art history and that trip to Europe, were you thinking of tondos and and that format then, or was it that round fit the subject? Well, interesting that you should mention the round with the uh, description of a tondo. I... uh was at the Academy of Fine Arts, and I, as I say, a friend had given me these circles, and I took one of the finished pieces to uh, a critique. The critique was uh, by uh, Julian Levy, and he said, oh, you're bringing me a tondo, which was the first <laughs> time I uh, heard reference of a, a round piece calling, uh, being called a tondo. And I've always, how can I say, been... Uh, attracted to a variety of different shapes. I didn't sort of feel that 
every uh, piece that I got involved in was either square or rectangle. And right now I'm currently involved with doing a whole series of of landscapes from Jamaica that are in oval format. And the circles, ovals, squares, triangles just are there to uh, exploit. I think my favorite detail maybe in, in Dippy's Delight is the, the basketball hoop, the orange you know, round, of course, hoop is at the top center of, of the circle. And that is, of course, exactly where, say, Raphael would typically put Mary's halo in his tondos of the Virgin Mary. And I wonder if that was intentional or if... Yeah, yeah great imagination, but that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not it. No. Well, maybe it points to maybe maybe your use of the, the circle there and Raphael's use of the, the circular halo there just points to how the form works in the format. Well, there again, I say there's a lot of imaginations that have come to uh, express themselves as far as my mm-hmm. particular images are concerned, but uh, that wasn't it. I did a series of circular pieces that were just based on a compositional dissection of the the circular format and with this particular piece the the rim mm-hmm. was at the top and it indicated a degree of height below there's a, a solid black area and I wanted to relate the height element in relationship to uh, wilt. That was the uh, motivating factor there. The other piece is called Vertical Hold, and it got its title from, you know, early televisions when it would roll, the image would roll. Oh, that's right. A little button that you could turn on the TV to make the picture hold still. Yeah, and the... uh, other component was to have the ball extend beyond the frame of the canvas. In that particular sort of situation, I added a, a piece to the wooden part of the canvas and stretched the canvas over and made the ball appear a degree dimensional. Mm-hmm. And the series of balls that I used for a variety of different pieces reflected the game as I knew it in Philadelphia, which had a the playground element. The balls were so used that it kind of wore away all the lines. It became almost a clear sphere. In fact, one of my, my very first basketballs was so used that you could hardly tell where the lines were. Hmm. It wasn't until later that I could afford to get a basketball where the line configurations were visible. That was part of the being and experience with the game that was basically uh, based on a variety of different geometric dissections and formats for the uh, circles and, and squares that are used. My guest is Barkley Hendricks. We'll be right back after a break. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. 
Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words, and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus, Catherine Bernhardt, featuring vibrant and youthful paintings that hover between abstraction and figuration. The artist's subjects abound in popular and consumer culture and are depicted in a simplified, flat, gestural style that approaches a cartoonish quality, on view in Fort Worth through July 9th. Also, opening May 28th, Doug Aiken, Electric Earth, the first survey to comprehensively examine Aiken's experimentations across mediums and disciplines. And now back to my conversation with Barclay Hendricks. So switching to those those kind of smooth colors that, that recur in your work, your portraits are, are often, not always of course, but often on a flat, single color background. And various critics over the years have referred to that as being everything from an address of minimalism to a, a pop or post-pop updating of the monochrome backgrounds and paintings by, by say, Thomas Aikens. So before I ask a little bit about how you ground your figures, could you talk me through how you came to that flat, often brightly colored space? Well, the, let me say the necessity is a mother of invention or something like that. The experience that I had with working with flat surfaces came from my frustration with the drying rate of, uh, of oil. And I had a friend who was very much exponent of using acrylic. He said, well, why don't you use acrylic? And I had never you know, used acrylic before. And being able to layer the acrylic on and have it finished within several hours. I mean, you can layer on you know, several uh, surfaces and it'll be dry enough to uh, be finished. And that was the, the eureka moment that happened there. And then later, the uh, combination of the acrylic with the oil became a, a wet-dry uh, situation because the the backgrounds were or areas around were in a, a state of, of of dryness, whereas the figures I would put oil glaze or surface so that it appeared to be wet, so a, a wet dry sensation. It's a really striking difference, and 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 maybe the most striking of those paintings are the ones in which you pose figures wearing white on a white background, part of your so-called limited palette series. And I'm t thinking about work such as Slick, which is a self-portrait at the Chrysler Museum in Virginia, yeah. or What's Going On, uh, Sophisticated Lady. And I have another art history question in a moment, but I wonder why white on white appealed to you. The, again, further exploration with the use of, of new paints. I was introduced to uh, to Magna. I was offered the experience of working with an oil base material, but it dried a bit faster than regular oil painting. And the, again, the marriage of oil, acrylic, and Magna gave me three different painting 
surfaces in which to, to work with. And the limited palette sort of situation extended beyond that one color because I had, you know, black on black, red on red, green on green, yellow on yellow. So that combination gave me a variety of different painting surfaces and, and colors to experiment with. Were there any particular of the colors that you found fit your eye best on the canvas that you most enjoyed, forgive the phrase, playing with together? Not necessarily. It was mm. the uh, experience with the then painting that I was working on that mandated an area of exploration and satisfaction. As I say, I did quite a number of uh, limited pieces with a variety from the uh, the painting spectrum. Didn't sort of, you know, I didn't sort of favor one over the other. Well, I'm particularly fond of, <laughs> of the white on white works, and maybe one reason is before, um, Diddy, before Diddy had his uh, white parties. Right. <laughs> well, there is an art historical white on white reference in the late 19th century. James McNeil Whistler helped make his name at the very beginning of his career with his three symphony on white paintings. And I guess I wonder if you were referring to them or interested in them, if you became interested in them. No, I was quite ignorant of that. It was only later that I became aware of that. But no, there was just the inspiration of the marriage of new technology for Mm -hmm. me. At almost the exact same time, in the in the in the mid to late '60s, and then in the early '70s, there was another artist in the United States who was placing both people and, and, and in his case, objects on on a flat, often white ground, and that, of course, was Wayne Tebow. And and, and you and he were were three thousand miles apart at a time when, you know, America was much bigger. This was before airline deregulation. People didn't fly coast to coast as much, certainly, and certainly not as readily as they do now. Did you have any idea he was he was doing that as well, uh, about what he was up to? No, I, I didn't. I did discover his work later on, but he was basically all oil. I did love his pastries. In fact, the way that he used oil, you could almost go up there and, uh, and take your finger and swipe across a cake and put it in your mouth. As I said, I didn't discover it, Wayne, until uh, much, much later. You know, another thing I see in your portraits oh, that... Wayne didn't do any black people. No. But one of the things I, I, I often see in your portraits is, is is the painter's point of view. It seems like you're pretty consistently, ever so slightly, looking up at your subjects, as if you're kind of standing and painting from like a mid-chest point of view, slightly looking up at them. Am I, am I right in that, or am I maybe getting that a little bit wrong? Not necessarily. I mean, there was a perspective that I wouldn't have that wasn't necessarily understood when the the piece was out of my studio because one of the uh, areas of presentation that I like to have with my figures is that it they are, should be hung just a, a wee bit above eye level, the average height, I'm five nine. So uh, if I would present them, they would be just a wee bit above eye level. And that meant that they weren't that far off the floor. With basketball players, that would be a little bit different, you know. I wanted to have a kind of perspective that the the works weren't put that very high up. That would be removing them from a human contact. 
for the situation. I wanted the uh, kind of uh, an illusion that made them a wee bit more computational with the human scale. And ah. I think it's human scale, average scale. I mean, with basketball players, that's something different, you know. But there's the average scale, you know, five four to five eight five nine. I mean, when you started getting to six and seven feet, that's a little different. There was that my human scale that I was I was working off, and as I say, there were several shows that I was a part of would have Wayne Scouting. I say that right? You know, I never know how to say that word either. I just picture it in my head. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know, <laughs> museums would would have that wooden height sort of situation around the museum, so therefore they would place the works over that and that always took my works out of the, the human scale that that I liked. I had that in mind in terms of what to avoid but you know I didn't always have any control over that once it you know left my studio but I always kind of liked to have them just a, a wee bit above eye level. That's really interesting, because one of the things that is typically part of your portraits is that they are regular Joes and Janes. They're, they're, they're just people you knew, know, and have known. So were you, from the very beginning, you know, before you have brush on canvas, thinking about the idea of these people you know confronting people in a gallery setting, in a museum setting, there being a real eye-to-eye contact in that way? Yeah, I definitely want to have wanted to have an interaction that was close to the scale of the spectator I didn't have you know kind of billboard size images nor did I have a whole lot of miniatures I made some small heads that's about as extreme as I've painted I I like a bit more of a of a human scale sort of situation I have done several pieces where the individuals were tall. For example, you had mentioned the National Gallery, Jules. A painting of George Jules Taylor? Yeah. Uh, from 1970. Jules was about 6'8", six, six, so he had kind of a Watusi-like figure. There's a piece of him that's in the Tate Collection where he's nude on the couch and Actually, I did four paintings of, uh, of Jules because he was such a striking figure and a personality that, well, actually, I just had someone uh, wanted to use one of the images. Now, I'm going to use the N-word now, and I don't know whether you're going to strike it. I'll leave it but, in. It's in the title of the painting. Yeah. It's called uh, New Orleans Nigger. Yeah. The title came about because, as I say, Jules was uh, a fellow student at Yale at the time, and I had him pose for me and had him going through a variety of different poses. And this one particular experience where he was sitting for me, I like the music called jazz. And the reason why I say that because there's a debate about why or where, whether it should be called jazz, because there are a lot of black musicians that kind of detested the word. But anyway, for lack of, well, just a description, I was talking with Jules about jazz from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jules came back at me and says, just because every time you 
people sort of meet a nigga from New Orleans. They got to figure he's like, he he knows something about jazz. They say, well, I'm a nigga <laughs> from New, New Orleans, and I don't know shit about jazz. <laughs> we should note here you're a really big jazz fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we both cracked up, and then Jewel said to me, he said, you know, say, every nigga I know from Philadelphia is crazy, including you. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how that title got. I know that there's going to be, you know, some, you know, issues or that whole area of description is under the microscope as to whether or not it should be, uh, you know, used. But that's the way Jules talked. And you wanted to represent that in the titles. Exactly. That's not the only one I've used, but where uh, description has been very honest and straightforward. Now I could mention further here if it's necessary. But Jules was a very you know, straightforward person. And I went to uh, have that part of good development that I felt comfortable with because that's the way he was. Your your four paintings of him are, are you know, maybe your four greatest portraits. One of them, the painting simply titled George Jules Taylor from 1972 at the National Gallery, features... Well, he holds his body in a really distinct, marvelous way. And I wonder if one of the reasons you were attracted to painting him was because of the way he, he carried or posed himself? Yeah, well, that particular piece was inspired by Jules floating around Yale's campus with his cape and kidding about being like a black Dracula, you know. And he was, you know <laughs> It really does look like a... <laughs> barefoot with, with this cape, you know. <laughs> his glasses were always crooked, and one day he says to me, he said, you always make my glasses crooked. I said, Jules, well, look at you. The glasses are always crooked. If you don't stop doing it, I'm not going to pose for you no more. So, but each uh... of the, the pieces, if you notice, you know, his glasses were always kind of crooked and sliced eyeball. You, know? you mentioned the Tate painting a moment ago the painting Family Jewels from 1974. It's a couple years later. And it's a painting in which, excuse me, Jewels is is nude. And it's one of a number of black nudes you've painted. And I want to ask a couple questions about that. First, could you tell us how, how I, I guess Family Jewels was your last painting of, of him? I think so. I think so. So how did, how did, you know, by this time he's posed for you a good bit. He's been in a number of paintings. How did the idea of him posing nude come about? And then could you talk us through how you got to that sofa and how you got to the Moroccan tiles in the background? Well, as I said, Jules is, a, I don't think I'm exaggerating, maybe at least six five to six eight, And he was kind of tower above me, and, and he was kind of rail thin. And I just thought, say, well, great to uh, painting him with no clothes. And so I approached him and so he said cool you know he had no problem neither did i he came up and i uh posed him on a the couch that had a sheet on it a white sheet and the piece got started that way and in hours when when he wasn't posing for me i wanted to construct a slight environment i didn't want to sort of give a lot of sort of deep space but a shallow space and the uh tiles that you mentioned were photographs of tiles that I had brought back from my uh, travels across North Africa, Morocco specifically. 
and I had a, a library of a, a variety of different tile formats, and I used one specific motif for jewels and uh, another one, another painting of a female that I did, Sweet Bang. Mm-hmm. Painting of Lynn Jenkins from seventy five, seventy six. Yeah, yeah. And the lure rug was you know, a kind of an invention taken from you know component rug pieces that I did. So that was, and I cleaned up the couch, you know, gave it a little bit more of an Egyptian kind of feel to it. Decadent, a very decadent feel. Yeah, and the shirt on the left side was one of my shirts. It's a woman wearing a textile, apparently a white woman, kind of looking toward jewels. I mean, she's on a shirt, but (laughs) yeah, it was no, it was a a motif on a a, one of my shirts at the time of pattern. And so the model's hand, left arm, extends beyond the frame of the canvas, and his pose seems to kind of vaguely reference some traditional European Venuses and female nudes but not too directly? Was that well, the pose no, you determined or that he determined? He sat down with his smoke pipe and got comfortable. And it was very quick in terms of the pose that we selected, and mm-hmm. he could hold it for a while, and that was it. Have you ever painted female nudes? Oh, of course. Oh, you have? Yeah. In fact, one, well, one has just been accepted a collection of the Nasher Gallery called Take All the Time You Need. But I've done uh, a number of, of female nudes. You, you've also done a, a, a quite famous male nude self-portrait of yourself in an early painting. Why were male nudes of interest to you? Was it because they were different? Was it specifically about the black body and, and the black male body in particular? Well, they were friends who uh, were open enough to pose for me, and that was cool. But not much more than that? No, I wasn't trying to sort of make a a statement that, well, people have misunderstood. I had an opportunity to uh, have someone pose for me. In my particular situation, as someone said, you're always around. I did myself. Say you're you're always around unless you're a nut or something, you know, and you don't know where you are. You know, know, one of of the things I thought about when I was looking through images of your paintings to prepare to talk to you was that, you know, a lot of times painters, and I'm, I'm talking going back 100, 200 years, painters are really good at, at painting women clothed or nude or men clothed or nude. But it's somewhat less common that a painter's paintings of men and women are equally stylish and equally fabulous and fashionable and and have body posture and poses that just kind of bounce off the canvas in both your men and both your women do. And have you thought about this fluidity and facility you have with, with, with both genders or, or not so much? Well, as I said, there was a painting mandate that I wanted the figures to look as though they could exist in the space that the spectator was. That's why I didn't make a lot of frilly background kind of stuff. I wanted a, a kind of a confrontational sort of situation with either male or female. That was the uh, motivating factors that kind of inspired a, a number of different compositions. And if I did have a limited uh, I mean, space, it would be somewhat limited. For example, uh, arriving soon, you think with that one? No. Uh, a female 
it's a double canvas actually a female that i had did three paintings of anyway. oh is that the one with the coke machine yeah exactly ah i do know that one we'll have an image of that on the website the reason how that got started she was posing for another painting and she took a break and there was a five gallon can in my studio and so she sat down on that and I liked the pose, so I quickly grabbed a canvas and did a, a sketch of her. And the, the Coke machine, which I have now, well, I have it now because my studio downtown in London was the uh, former meeting hall for Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> so when they split, they left the Coke machine there. When I split, I took it with me. So, <laughs> so, so the woman in, in that painting, she's wearing a white tank top with the Rolling Stones sticking lips. Oh, yeah. Right. And she's holding what is either a balloon or, you know, or a popsicle or something. It is a balloon. Well, it could it looks like it could be a popsicle too. It's got that yeah. shape and and of course her lips. And it reminds me that pretty much everybody you paint is fabulously attired. They have a remarkably distinct sense of of fashion and identity. Is that something you look for whether it's when deciding whether to paint from a photograph you've taken or to ask someone to pose for you? Well, I knew a lot of stylish people. That was one of the motivating factors for doing quite a number of them. That particular piece had a, a building process over several years, and that one of the pieces where I experienced some angst with because the white area, I was using oil, and it took me a while to layer several surfaces on it. And the particular piece sort of sat in my studio for about a couple of years, incomplete, unfinished. And I went down to Philadelphia, and I came back, and my then-girlfriend had balloons all over my studio because it was my birthday. And so when I walked in, there was that eureka sort of situation. Wow, <laughs> put balloons in. And if you notice, a couple of the balloons has happy birthday. And then I wanted to use uh, something that wasn't the birthday logo. And I had a soda can, remember called Moxie. I had put Moxie on one of the balloons. That was one of those, as I say, Eureka moments that particular piece related to. You mentioned a moment ago drawing on canvas. Do you sketch out? Do you, do you do make drawings on paper and sketch out paintings before you make them, or do you just go right to canvas? Rarely have I done a, a lot of sketching on paper. I have a few maybe thumbnail sketches, and most of the pieces that we've been talking about have been ones where I have live models and. There's a particular piece you might remember what's going on. There's a photographic element of the group of people, but then my say girlfriend at the time posed for I used her body for the for the nude. It was surrounded, so, I think, by four four men who were all wearing white. Yeah. Actually three men, one woman and one ah. man. And oh, Adrian that's right. was a was a dancer and she had a beautiful body, so she had posed for several pieces couple head ahead of her and the one that the piece that I was saying that had just got ex was given to the Nasher Gallery was called Take uh, All the Time You Need, which was Adrian kind of semi nude on the couch. It started with her being fully clothed 
no, actually, you know, nude, and then I started to add clothing to her, to the figure, from the feather boa to uh, her underwear and her socks. She was a dancer, as I said, and one of the first things she would do when she'd come home was kick off her clothing. And so I put her on the couch and did the sketch, and then I started to add things rather than take them away. So that was the inspiration for that particular piece. Is that how you painted Sweet Thing also? Yeah, but she was dressed pretty much the way the piece came out. I, I did add the stripe across her chest, which was looked like a workout outfit, and the, the pattern of her dress. Her wedgies were hers. The shoes she's wearing. And the pattern for her head wrap, I think I used that. But then, as I say, the pattern for the rug came, a rug that was photographed at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and then the Moroccan tile pattern across the back. Right, right, which we talked about earlier. You know, she, in, in, in this painting, the model is posed holding uh, a couple fingers from her right hand to her forehead, a very Angre-esque pose. And that reminds me of... Well, let me give you a little background. Like she came to pose for me, and I forgot which, which time I decided to uh, add the balloon. I mean, the bubble. But She's anyway, we're engaged in, in conversation, and she was telling a real, you know, sob story uh, about something that was happening in her life, and then all of a sudden, she blew this bubble and it broke the mood completely, and I felt I had to add that. It's it's a remarkable pink part of the painting. <laughs> you made a painting in 1964 called My Black Nun, and it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a painting of a black nun. And I think in talking about it before, in talking about that that particular painting before, you've talked about inserting a black figure, a black person, into a place in art history or a place in your life where you, you typically didn't see black people. You didn't see black nuns in Philadelphia when you were a kid. And when I see the Angre-esque pose in, in, in this painting we've been talking about, it, it makes me wonder how much you consciously think about putting black people and black figures into the art historical canon. Some, some artists of your generation, such as Carrie James Marshall, talk about that a lot. This particular piece, my black nun, I grew up in a neighborhood where there was a Catholic school, and on the way to school, you know, we'd pass the church and school, and I never saw a black nun. And this is a rather small piece, maybe 10 inches or so, and so I did this piece, and I actually did a larger one that was horrible, that I destroyed, quite crappy. So the only surviving experience was the one that you just mentioned. I wasn't trying to deal with an historic situation, so to speak. Just I never saw any black nuns until I uh, got to Europe. But as as the decades went on and you kept painting, did you become interested in finding ways of inserting black people into a canon that had not always included them? No, no? I wanted to do the people, and you know, I partic- I don't particularly like that, you know. I like to sort of deal with the people straight out, and then unfortunately, because of the sort of situation with the uh, bigotry, racism, and the like, we're placed in a, I say we, we artists are placed in an unfortunate script, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. It wasn't something I readily tried to avoid, but 
unfortunately, as I say, it's a script that we as Americans are held captive to, whether we like it or not. Are so not you, a conceptual part of the project. Yeah, are you you're American? Yes. All right. And, well, you're, you're held captive to a script that none of us have, have written. Unfortunately, it will continue to be so in light of the uh, mentality that has been ingrained a part of our historical background. But I feel that, well, there's a vision that I have that goes beyond that if I can. I don't feel that I necessarily have to lock myself into a kind of mentality or a script that constantly, as I said early, deals with the misery of my people. The last thing I want to ask you about is the landscapes you've painted in Jamaica. Every every January for many years now, you've spent four weeks in Jamaica, and you often paint in plain air. And these landscapes are, as you as you mentioned earlier, typically oval or, or rounded, if you will. Why that shape? Why the oval or rounded shape for the landscapes? Again, it's a historical relationship to landscapes that are in the rectangular and square format. I've learned a great deal from that. However, as a human being, our visual relationship to the world is not squares or rectangles. So there's a a soft edge approach to the reality of we human beings. And there's a soft edge approach that I have experience with ovals and circles. And you have the frames for those custom made in Canada, I think I read? Yeah. Get lucky and find some ovals and circles uh, and yard sales and stuff. Well, Barclay Hendricks, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been all kinds of fun. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.